Turn to 1 Corinthians 14. We continue our march through the book of 1 Corinthians. Pick up verse 26. I continue the subject of order in the house that he's dealing with. He's talked about spiritual gifts, and that was wonderful. But gifts without regulation or without boundaries can be uh, confusion, and they were meant to be for edification. And so he's given them very meaningful and helpful instruction in churches that uh, certainly have the gift of tongues on display and prophecy. Uh, and sometimes uh, uh, churches that are not into tongue speaking and prophecies, what if we, do we have to learn here? We, we have plenty. Just look at it, and it will guide us in uh, what should go on. Uh, what, what then, brothers? Verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. And all the men said, your wife's with you, so don't do a thing. Just, For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. And if you don't understand this, that means you can't learn anything while you're there because you can't get it. You'll have to get it when you get home, unless you understand it. We'll look at that. Uh, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. This is God's word. Uh, what should happen when we gather for church? What things are commanded in Scripture that should take place? Uh, there's no place we're commanded to make announcements. We do it anyway, right? It just adds so much to the service. And you still don't know what we said. We, we pay thousands a year to give you a bulletin. And do you know what's going on? Do you know what's on the calendar? 
Well, let's move right along. Uh, it's amazing what we do to try to communicate. Got a web page. But we do things. There's no place he said you ought to have nurseries. That was never a high priority in the New Testament because they kept them with them in church. I never knew what it was to grow up that we had a really a children's church because we always had to sit with our parents. And some of our parents kept a little strap to keep us, boom, pay attention, wake up. Uh, made you just love going to church. And uh, as a child, that is. Uh, but here's some things that they, they were told to do in the early church. Just to give you a little list. They were told to read the scriptures, 1 Timothy 4. Uh, don't neglect the reading of the scriptures. What I just did in reading the passage is one thing to go with the sermon, but it's a command that if I didn't do anything but read the passage, I obeyed the word. See, it, it's commanded to do that. Um, I'm preaching the word today because I'm commanded to preach the word, 2 Timothy 4, 2, right? And my, on my ring, when I graduated with my doctorate in Greek, they have keruxan ton logon. It's inscribed right on the ring, every Dallas guy, preach the word. I'm in your face. That's what I do. I'm not a business manager. I'm not an administrator. I'm a preacher of the word. I often tell people the guy gave me a bad said, you're not much, you don't know much about business administration. I said, and you don't know anything about preaching. He's trying to slap me and intimidate me. No, no, I landed here not as a business administrator. I landed as a preacher. And if you think it's easy, try it. You know, so uh, he said, you ought to preach. You ought to teach. You ought to instruct. We ought to be a singing church. Ephesians 5 is plural. Be singing, psalming, spiritual songs. It's biblical to sing in church. And, and you ought to be singing to each other almost, singing to each other and uh, admonish, to praying. We pray in church, 1 Corinthians 11. It, there's corporate prayer. There's private prayer. Uh, holy men ought to be lifting up their hands to pray to the Lord, 1 Timothy 2. Okay, we ought to receive offerings, 1 Corinthians 16. Every first day of the week when you come together, receive an offering. We try to obey that. We love it. And you're giving wonderfully. Please just continue to do it. So um, there are some things we do in church that we don't have a command, uh, no command to have coffee and donuts, but it's sure wonderful, especially when you're sleepy. So... Uh, there are certain things that when we corporately meet, we should do. Now, here was a tongue-talking church. How should they regulate it was the issue. There was confusion going on both in prophesying and in tongue speaking. Uh, we've already looked at, I understand tongues, the supernatural ability to speak in languages that you didn't know. But you were forbidden to do it in the church unless someone was there that could translate it or interpret it so that the body could be edified. And he's going to tell them, if no such person is there, you can't speak in whatever language you speak in. Don't, because no one will be edified. So, he says, when you gather together, verse 27, no more than three people should ever be allowed, even at Corinth, to speak in tongues or this language. No more. 
The, it wasn't a group tongues meeting where everybody's talking in tongues. He said, no more than three people at the max. And if you have that many people that talk in tongues, he says, there must be someone that can interpret it. Look at that, what he says. Uh, verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, there, let there be only two or at most three. And should they all be speaking in tongues at once? No, each in turn. So there's orderly. And let someone interpret. But if no one does, if there's no one that can do that, you're out of order to be talking in tongues. Is it there? Did I make that up? And this was in a setting where tongues was evidently in the church prophesying was evidently going on, but it was regulated. I don't think I ever saw it regulated like this as I grew up in those circles. Everybody could talk in tongues at once. Everybody talked, prayed in tongues, whatever. We hope somebody interpreted, and when they did interpret, we don't know if they interpreted or just made it up. We don't know. But at least it was regulated and to be regulated at Corinth. Then he uh, deals with uh, prophesying. And one thing that's so tough uh, in dealing with prophesying is, is it was used broadly in the New Testament. Titus says, one of your prophets wrote, and he's talking about a pagan uh, poet that said something. So we, there was broad use. Other times you would refer to the prophets as the Old Testament prophets who wrote the Word of God. So you, you've got this high inspired revealed Word of God that's authoritative, and he quotes and calls a, a poet a prophet. So we get this broad usage. Uh, even here, he says, these prophets were not infallible. They were not equal to apostolic doctrine. They weren't equal to Scripture, because he said you've got to judge it to even see if they're right. And even when they're prophesying, some may get a revelation that's setting by. So here you got prophecy going on that may not be revelatory. And he said, give place to somebody that has a revelation. It, the more I study it, the more it's harder. I was always of the view that a prophet got a direct word from God without error. But the way it's used in 1 Corinthians, it's not that high. It's the Old Testament prophets. It's the apostles that got a direct word and were infallible. These, this church, a lot of things were being said in the name of God that weren't necessarily from God. So, he says, how do you regulate them? Verse 29, two or three prophets, notice that, at the most are to speak. And when they speak, just all start shouting, hallelujah, God has spoken. No, notice what he says. And let the others weigh what is said. How would you weigh what somebody got up in the church and so-called prophesied? How would you weigh it? I hear about three of you. Scripture. You would have to measure it, and what Scripture did they have? Old Testament and apostles that were going around like Paul 
that had not written the whole New Testament yet, but they would take the apostolic teaching that they had, Old Testament, and they would measure it as the Bereans did this when Paul preached and taught at the synagogue. They went home, cracked out their parchment somehow, studied the Scriptures to see if what Paul said in any way contradicted Scripture. Did Harold Campy contradict Scripture? Absolutely. I'm sorry for his embarrassment and the $70 million he raised to advertise that Christ was going to come yesterday. $70 million was raised. 5,500 billboards across America were used, and then they used all these vans and everything. Christ is coming. Is Christ coming? No question. Uh, Can you set a date? Everyone who's ever set a date has been wrong. So let me set a date. He's coming. I'm safe, right? I'm safe. He's coming. Perhaps today. Perhaps today. Is that too much? Perhaps. I don't know. How should I live tomorrow? And how should I think about tomorrow today? I might not be here tomorrow. Don't boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what 24 hours may do in your life. You may be dead. That's a pleasant thought. But James says, don't be boasting about tomorrow. You don't have tomorrow if God doesn't give it to you. Right? So Christ is coming. We know that. But we should judge what he had to say or any other man. The Lord is going to do this. The Lord is going to do that. And when you hear me preach, please, please go home and crack your Bible to see if he got it from the Bible. Or did he eat too much pizza? This is above the preachers. And that's why I'll box with you if you disagree with me, because I did my homework. So if you take me on, be ready, because I'm not going to be passive. Well, I don't agree with you. And I want to say, well, you just prejudiced? Are you stupid? What does the verse say? This settles the argument. This settles the argument. And and Christians differ on many things. But that's why we got to know our Bible, right? And this is a new Bible. That's why the gold leaf is still there. But I'll bring you down and show you some that you got to wear them out. Because we cannot let the words of mere men go above this word. This is the final. Not popes, not preachers, not so-called prophets. This is the final court of appeal. If you, if, you do, if you give that up, you will be a sap for anybody that talks in the name of God. And there's so much false teaching. I beg of you, know your Bible. What does God say? Not as fallible preachers. Can you accept that? Do not make me a hero. I just want to be treated like a brother, not a hero. Now, he goes on. In the passage, all the men have been waiting for. For nearly. Well, he goes on to say about these prophets, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, that's what is amazing. Some are prophesying, but someone gets a revelation so that 
that makes it hard for me to distinguish. Well, what were the prophets, the guys prophesying, giving if it wasn't revelation? You see that? Then all of a sudden, the guy breaks in that's got revelation. Mm. That's a, it's a little difficult for me to, to distinguish. Maybe the one were prophesying, if many take it, as J.I. Packer and others, that prophesying was giving a quickened word, maybe quoting, um, Be anxious for nothing, I say unto you, but cast all your cares on the Lord, for he careth for you. And quoting Scripture like that and applying it to the church, and then all of a sudden somebody, I, I've got a special word from God. I'll hush, and we let the special word, whatever they're claiming, okay, you got a special word, okay? Now, they're telling this person, when you get up with your special word as well as you other guys, the rest of us are going to judge what you said. We're not going to just say, whatever they say is true. No, no, no. We listen, and then we judge. Good verse that tells you we're told to judge. Right? Because you always hear judge, not that you be not judged, and nobody knows what it means. That's why they quote it. So he's a judge. What is being said? For you can all prophesy one by one. That is up to three. Everybody that has this gift can prophesy, but you'll have to do it orderly, no more than three, and do it in order. Don't all be up at the same time, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Why is he saying that? Your gift isn't so strong that you don't know how to shut up if another one gets up with a revelation. You can bring it under control. You can say, you know, some people in church, especially if you get in an emotional setting, I just couldn't help myself. Oh, oh, you better help yourself. And he says their spirit is subject to the prophet. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So what we want in our assembly, we can, it all depends on the culture you're in. You, in churches, they get real happy and very expressive. See, all of you come from different backgrounds. Some of you have a liturgical background. As soon as you walk in that back door, and to say anything in this auditorium is almost sacrilegious. Others of us grew up in assemblies. If there was no noise, we were suspect. I mean, you're hugging each other. You're greeting each other. You're going to sing. You're going to testify. That it's a verbal expression assembly. And there's both kinds, and I think you need both. Sometimes when you want to meditate, you just want to, I didn't come to talk to the people. I came to hear from God. I didn't come to mix it up. I came to pray. And, and that, that is a wonderful thing. We do little of it because we're a free church kind of a thing. And we're just kind of rowdies. That's where we grew up. And being quiet and waiting on God is hard, especially the younger generation. The older you get, you don't have any energy to be rowdy anyway. So you're safe. Not necessarily spiritual, but safe. Now he starts in. As in all the churches of the saints, what I'm telling you is true. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, 
but should be in submission as the law also says. If they want to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. Uh, I, I think if any of you have been with me, there's only few of you that have been with me over 35 years. In 40 years, I have been all over the map about what to do with women. I have been confused ever since I got married and had three daughters. <laughs> I don't know what to do with women. But more so in the Bible. Let me, give, let me confess the progression in my own theology. When I started Valley, women could do anything. I came out of Pentecostal background. My wife and I traveled with a woman preacher. Uh, my sister Hazel traveled with a woman preacher, a Scottish evangelist. So, man, we, we, we had women that they evangelized. They did anything, and they were as good as the men. So I, that's background. That's what I grew up with. Women. There's no restriction on women. Then I saw the light. And by the way, Virginia was my first song leader when I started this church, and I fired her and wasn't too good at it. I just said one day, Virginia, it's not right for you to be leading singing. Please sit down. Isn't that wonderful? She's just doing what she'd been asked. But I just was heavy in the word. Read a verse like this. Women are to be, we wouldn't let them testify. We wouldn't let them, any speaking contribution in the assembly. No. Then as I kept getting deeper in the word, I decided all the women need to wear a hat. Are you with me? I'm just confessing, telling you my progression. And in our church at that time, those who were older Christians the hatless crowd sat on the left. How many? Donna's there. She knows. Then the hat crowd. And these young people, they did about whatever I said, whatever revelation I'd gotten lately. And I took 1 Corinthians 11, literally, that women, because they truly had to be covered, had to have a veil, have something upon the head in the meeting. It, I was doing it out of Scripture. And I uh, thought, well, if that's what it says, we ought to. Have our women covered. So I've got them silent. I've got about 30 of them covered. And I've got them all set up in the assembly. They made up for it another context. But that's how strict. And then I started doing doctoral studies at Dallas. And guess what one of the main topics was? The role of women in church. What should we do with women in the church? My answer, keep them quiet, keep them covered. <laughs> so don't come up running to me that I'm a libertine about women. Here's the problem. Look at 1 Corinthians 11 with me. 1 Corinthians, and I have to say Dr. D.A. Carson of Trinity Theological Seminary in Chicago helped me the most. In, his, in the book, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by John Piper and Grudem, it was D.A. Carson's article 
on this chapter, chapter 14, that was convinced me to change my view. So now I'm going to walk you through it, okay? I want you to get this. I want you to know I've got to defend what we practice, right? Or I've got to change. And God knows I've changed on this so many times. Uh, you know the prophets have to be judged. Okay? Now look at a verse in 1 Corinthians 11. Notice uh, verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And I'm reading ESV. But every wife, and I took it every woman, every wife or woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, let's just leave it right there. Let's not discuss whether she's covered or not. They truly were in 1 Corinthians 11. They were told to wear a covering. No question. The big issue is why we haven't brought it over to all churches today. Our church pr does not practice the covering. Most conservative churches don't. Catholics do. They wear the little veil, shawl on the head. Now, what's amazing, in Judaism, the men wear something that we're forbidden to do. At the Wailing Wall, Jewish men are wearing the yarmulke. I'd be forbidden. I could not pray with that on my head because I'm forbidden to do it. I'm not to have my head covered when I pray. 1 Corinthians 11. Now, this woman, she says, when she prays or prophesies, have her head covered. Now, listen to that. Does, that, does the verse say that? How many saw it? Is it in your Bible? Where does she pray and prophesy? In the garage? Where, do you, where is he talking about this in 1 Corinthians 11? Where does this take place? Thank you, Kevin. Now, I come over to chapter 14, and she's told to be totally quiet. Now, which one's right? Now, let me tell you what guys do. They'll say, chapter 11 was a concession, but it's not what God wanted. They don't have any authority for that, but that's the way they resolve the tension. The tension is, how can they pray and prophesy in the church in 11 and told to be totally quiet in 14? Do you see the tension? Talk back to me. Okay. When I ask a rhetorical question, I expect you to answer. It's not just rhetorical. Talk to me. I want to know if you're hearing the argument. Um. Here is what D.A. Carson, who led me to this, in the context, he understands, and I've come to see, that the limitation on the women and telling them to be silent is they are not to participate in judging the prophets, but to be in submission to their husband. Because he says, as you're under the law, the church has never been under the law but this law goes back to Genesis 2, the role of husband and wife. Wife, just rank yourself under your husband and let it be just the men who judge the so-called prophets and prophesyings in the meeting. That lessens disorder. It doesn't get everybody on board. You, and if you have any question when you get home, ask your husband. Let the men, let the men judge 
whether the teaching is true or false. Let them deal with that themselves. I excuse you from this part. Be quiet in this area. Don't even participate. Does that make sense? Do you know what I'm saying? So you can pray and prophesy in 11. They can have a part. They were able to sing in the church in Ephesians, and they had equal uh, worth and status before God, different roles, but equal worth. But I don't want you women to participate in judging these prophets. So both stand. Be absolutely quiet in the matter of judging prophets. And most of our women have to be quiet because we don't recognize any prophets in this meeting. We only recognize preaching the Word of God. And I don't want the women to jump up during the service and say, I disagree with you. No, ask your husband at home. If you don't really agree even with preaching, it'd be better. Ask her, what did you think? He, I said, what? What did she say? What did he say? <laughs> so you men got to stay awake enough to answer her question. <laughs> See? So there it is. You got the two. Now we got 1 Timothy 2. There's another uh, thing that you want to know. All conservatives are steeped in this. Look at verse, uh, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. This is in church. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, could she be the president of a company and hire men? But not in church. This is in the church. Could your mother tell you what to do outside of church? Believe me, my mother would. Uh, she never read this verse. She was just Irish. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So we do not have women teaching a teenage boys on up in this church. They can teach in the lower grades, but we have women that are in the youth group that help with uh, young ladies, and believe me, they, they are a great help. Yeah, she's in there. She's in the youth group. She's, thank you, and you do a great job. We hear great reports. I do not permit a woman. So we don't have women pastors, women elders. that's told to be the husband of one wife and only in California could you get around that verse. But husband of one wife, uh, we stay with a biblical definition. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then he goes to Genesis 2, the creation account of the order of men and women. Now, let's look at another passage where we're looking. And this is a favorite of those evangelical feminists who would say, uh, all order and ranking like this is erased in Christ, which I don't accept, but this is a strong verse in their defense. Uh, Galatians, verse 27, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I would take this, the Spirit placed me in Christ Water baptism celebrates it, but this is literally, we were immersed into Christ. We put on Christ. 
Now watch this. Having put on Christ, then he says, this is the ramification. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Now let me ask you, just because you became a Christian, did you lose your ethnicity? Well, what is he saying? There is neither slave nor free. You mean there is no, there's no such thing as a Christian slave? Roman Empire was full of them. Uh, there is no male and female, so get rid of the men in the women's bathrooms. Go unisex. No, no, you, you got to, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, the emphasis is, when you've been immersed into Jesus Christ, there is such an equality in him that your gender doesn't matter, your ethnicity doesn't matter, and your social economic category does not matter. You're fully accepted because you're in Christ. You have all the privileges to God that any male, any rich versus uh, slave, uh, whatever. It, it's this great, great truth that you have been liberated in Christ. And let me tell you this much. If you were a woman in the ancient Near East, you Western women are spoiled. You don't appreciate what you got very much. You're like all of us Americans. We're brats we've raised up with so much. But you'd be a woman in the ancient Near East that even if you had a menstrual cycle, you had to be put outside in, in your home for seven days, not allowed, had to take all these baths just to get back to the worship center. Uh, to be a woman in the ancient Near East was a horrendous load. And if you don't think it exists, study what goes on in Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Iraq. You see, the gospel came west. It came to Europe. It came on over from Macedonia, from Athens, from Greece, to Italy, to Rome. Then it went on up. It touched France. It kept going north, reached those rowdy, rowdy Germans up there, the Gauls. And then it made it to the British Isle. The gospel went west, not east, because Paul was forbidden. Guess where women have been liberated the most? Where the gospel has gone. Because we cannot demean them. Christ died for feminine gender as much as male gender. You're as equal in Christ. And God forbid that we demean any part of God's creation, male, female, children, old folks, it doesn't matter, uh, slave, free, ethnicity. There's no racism in Christ. There's no gender battles in Christ. There should not be. And Christ lessened the harshness of the fall on women. He said in Genesis 3, you shall be treated harshly by men. And they've suffered at the hands of men ever since Genesis 3. But in Christ, the greatest elevation that ever came to women came by a man that was the Messiah. And he said, my crosswork will liberate women. 
I'll even let them participate in worship. Did you know what? They were not allowed to even speak in a Greek assembly. In the synagogue, they couldn't sit with men. You couldn't sit with your husband in synagogue. You'd have to have two separate places. Uh, matter of fact, this is radical. Hear me. I'm actually able to look in your face without a veil, without lust, without scheming, without anything but family affection in Christ because you're not a thing to be used. I just had somebody in this church, I'm assuming, they, they left no address. I don't know where it came. I just got something in the mail about a, a Muslim wedding, Muslim weddings. And they had pictures. They took it from the Internet. Uh, this is what it, it's on my desk right now. If anyone doubts, I'll let you see it. But it's after I have a coffee break. And, and this is what the article was. It told me about women in the Muslim culture. And I've been to Morocco. I've been to Egypt. I've I've read in their own papers about female circumcision. I know. I've been there. I know. And in this article, it shows about in the picture, I believe there was 20 or 30 men in the ages of 20 to 30 with five-year-old brides. And they had their wedding dresses on, little five-year-old girls. They had lipstick on. And it showed a, one picture scene they're going away in a car with their new husband. What is a 30-year-old man doing marrying a 5-year-old girl? And they say uh, before puberty, they just use them as sex toys. Anathema. Outrage. How can you do a 5-year-old girl that way? Where Christianity goes... You can't endorse pedophiles. You can't endorse treating a young human being that way. This is wrong. It's wrong. And hear me, women. We thank God that in Christ I look on you as not inferior or less because I know Galatians 3 you have equal status, the same blood, the same God, the same cross, the same resurrection. And that happened to any believer, happened to you. You are clothed in Christ. You don't need to go through a man except the one man, Christ. You get to God. You've been elevated from the Near East. You are not a Near Eastern woman, thank God. So Christianity liberated women. And for them to even be able to sing, speak, or contribute anything in a gathered assembly was radical. Never, never took place in synagogue. Never took place in Greek assemblies. It was forbidden. But in Christ, they're giving liberties, but they're regulated. We're given gifts, but they're regulated. The role, the woman has this wonderful value in the body of Christ. And... Uh, I must say this, uh, if you're a male chauvinist, it will be part of your sanctification to repent of it and get over it. It's a sin as much as racism. To look on a woman is less. 
The, the scary thing, if you're reading anything in Newsweek, is women are graduating more. More women are graduating from college. More women are starting. It's scary, man. You better hurry up, all of us. They're taking over the country because they're smart. I, I used to teach a women of the word class in this church. I've always taught women. Had a Thursday morning Bible class when we were down at Holy Ghost Hall. And it's where all my Bible teachers in Sunday school came from. And you know what's amazing to me? And I, my wife's not here and none of my daughters, so I'm not self-serving here. Uh, I am amazed at how women get it every bit as easy as men. They actually have brains. <laughs> Maybe new to you. They're not dumb blondes. They, 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 I mean, how the scriptures come. Uh, you see, you know why they push so much for women pastors? One of the reasons is women are more naturally nurturing than all you cerebral kind. And people in hospitals and sick and going through suffering don't need a stoical upper lip man to say, it'll get better. Just hold a stiff upper lip. We're in conflict. They might like someone says, we will pray for you. What touches you touches us. Oh, that's a little too feminine. Well, maybe it's like God. There's no one that can comfort the heart like Jesus. He's not a woman, but he's got female and male characteristics. God spoke of his breast. God spoke of breast. He said, I'll be better to you than a mother that nurses her children. She may forsake her child as they did in the, in the exile and the siege of Jerusalem, but I'll never forsake you. I'll nurse you. I'll take. And men say, oh, I don't know what to do with that. Who does God think? He? God says, I created femaleness as much as I created maleness, and I can use a woman analogy to describe my love for my people, and I don't need a pink slip from the men. Do you understand? Now, let me say something that's real touchy. Uh, one of the roughest and hardest things we ever did in this church is ask my daughter to lead the worship ministry and the music. I told Rich Rollins, I'm going to take a beating for this. I don't want to do it. And he said, oh, I'll take it for you. I said, I'll take the arrows. I said, you're a big boy, but the arrows can get around you. <laughs> it's the riskiest thing I think I've ever seen because with all this history I've had of my views on women, they can't do anything. They could do maybe, uh, mm, this was a big challenge. And every once in a while, I have to tell her, cool it now. Don't get carried away, man. You're about to, I'm about to lose the church over you. Because she's free. She's expressive, whatever. But we've got to be led by men. You've got to, we won't have any women Bible teachers in front of you. Although we have women in this church teaching the Bible to women who are very effective. They're teaching it to your children right now, and nobody's complaining. See, they do have a ministry in this church. God wants to use women, does he not? He wants to use you, and we want to see God use you. We just don't want you to preach on Sunday morning because we think we'd violate Scripture. But it's not because we don't think you could preach. 
Remember, I traveled with women preachers, my wife and I. We, we basically preached youth camps and preached to young people so we get away with it. And she doesn't have any business preaching to men. But, boy, she was great with kids. Great. So, you know what? I'll tell you a story. Uh, the Snyders know. I, I've got a personal friend and their friend. She's about 84, Ruth, 84 now. And uh, when I was a 15, 16-year-old youth speaker, she fanned me, made, made me feel like us, Billy Graham. Just treated me great. Anybody that, that good to you, you'll take it. Bring it on when you were as bad as I was. And um, get, she, she lives over in uh, Brentwood, Oakley area. I just saw her recently on an occasion. She said, hey, I, I've started a, a new class. And I, I think, 84 years old, a widow. Yeah, well, what is it? I'm hosting a college career class in my home. Ruth, you need, you need to be seeing reruns of I Love Lucy. 84, you can't keep her down. And she says, you know, I'm no great teacher, but I, I, I provide a safe place for them on Friday night. They don't have to go to a bar. They don't have to get in trouble. They come to my home. We have food. We meet around the Bible. Uh, and, and you know what? And she said this to me. Get this. She said, you know, I'm no teacher, but maybe God will let me love them anyway. But, wait, wait. I'm no teacher, and maybe you can say of some of us, you're a great teacher, but you don't love them. You love to teach, but you don't love who you're teaching. You're in love with you. You like to talk to people, but it doesn't mean you love the people you're talking to. And I say this 84-year-old woman, totally gray-headed, about five foot three, dynamo for God. Because her besetting sin is she can't keep from loving. And when you love, you can have an impact. It won't be your gift. It'll be the impact of love. And guess what? If I was a college career kid, why do I want to sit and go buy an 84-year-old woman's house? Come on, I need at least someone about 20. They know they'll be loved. And so, uh, I have to tell you, church, stay with me another five years, and I'll maybe have another view. <laughs> but so far, I changed my view in keeping with my understanding. I'm being honest with you. I've been all over the board, and I hope you women will just look at the Bible ultimately. Let the Bible tell you your worth, um, your place in the body, and I have to say, the two greatest influences in my life for Christ were a woman and a dad. My sister Hazel, I just went to her house Tuesday to go through her library, and I found her copy of Pilgrim's Progress. She read to me when I was 13. I don't, no prophet ever shaped me as much as my sister. She always said, you're the son I never had. 80 years old, she was 14 when I was born, spanked me, changed my diapers, babysat me while my mother worked in the shipyards. 
I'm going to tell you, her hands are all over me. My old fourth grade educated daddy and my single sister, when she took me to Helms to drop me off, she'd say, you be pure. And I'd go out, and if I was going to see some girl, be pure. Take Jesus. Treat them like Jesus. I thought, a single woman telling me how to treat a girl? Yeah. She instilled the fear of God. I was scared to death to date a girl. Because she taught me purity. She taught me how to treat a girl. How I thank God for you dear women that have dared to love and dared to minister in the body. We all do our best to keep you in the boundary, Scripture says, but we will never deny your giftedness nor your worth. Our Father, help us men to love these sisters and these wives, you said, like Christ loved the church. Wow. I, I can't imagine a higher standard for me to try to achieve, Lord, to love my wife like you love the church. Well, that means I might have to die for her. And that's exactly what you told me. Be willing to die for her. Father, thank you for our precious sisters and our precious men. Saved by the blood of Christ, baptized into Christ. I thank you that the cross will destroy racism, chauvinism, class distinction. You hate it all. You're trying to create a people as a pilot program, your church on the earth, that we don't need politicians to tell us how to treat different ethnicities, how to treat women, men, seniors. Children, the love of Christ tells us we can't abuse anyone in his name. You, you forbid it. May the love of God be on display in this church. May when we greet one another as we dismiss, why don't we look on each other as brother and sister? Please, Lord. And fathers, we get ready to receive our morning offering. You have been moving these people to give beyond anything we've ever had. It's been a new benchmark, a, a new high water mark. It's kind of been a new Mississippi River flood level around here. And our needs are being met and, it, and our deficits being removed. You have heard us. We thank you. Thank you. I ask you to bless this offering. Bless those who give. Uh, may we somehow... Give it in an act of worship, in an act of worship. May we not just get it out of the way. I pray that you'll multiply it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and receive that as they sing. The blood will never lose its power. Let's stand. You can give and stand.
Father, we thank you for this meeting today. We thank we, we, that we can hear your word, that we can sing, that we can greet one another. You told us in the word to greet one another, even with a holy kiss. And we don't do a lot of that, Lord. But you told us to greet one another. May we greet one another as we're going out, and maybe a handshake will do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.